don't get to meet somebody like that every day. He put all the words in the right order. We were nervous that things could get out of control and we weren't prepared to allow that to happen, really. In my view, they were just naive hippies. It was a shortcut, yeah. Yeah, it was a shortcut to disaster, as it turned out. Something wasn't right. That person didn't look like they wanted to be there. Something happened, which I, to this day, can't explain. The penny was dropping, but by that time, it was far too late. As a senior officer, there was nothing to be seen. The minute it got said, I was like, that's him. Carl Franklin's dead. We've been exploring the dramatic events that took place in West Trent last Easter. I'm Mark Dowd, and in the second part of our story, brought to you by Things Unseen, we find the city divided over a protest camp and the vigilante group City Watch in the ascendancy. A new group had arrived led by a man of peace, Carl Franklin. But the interception of that group by City Watch proved fatal for Carl, whose body was found by two young boys dumped right here in a graveyard. News of his demise spread like wildfire. His followers were devastated, none more so than the man who had failed to stand by him, Charlie Hammond. I was like, it's him. It's him, he's dead. He's dead. And then the profound sense of guilt kicks in. It like already just felt like an absolute gutless wimp for doing what I did. Hitting someone as hard as you can and running away. But when you think that your cowardice has cost the life of somebody that had so much to give, I felt numb and alone. Charlie Hammond wasn't the only one to be totally overcome. Nat Martindale recalls where she was when she heard the news. I was on the march. It was when we'd broken off. Yeah. Who told you? It was just rumours coming through the crowd. I didn't know what to believe. It was a mate that told me that it's broken off with me from the May March. And what did they tell you? That a body had been found? or They just said that the leader of Carl's group, that Carl, had been killed. It was horrifying. I felt sick. I wanted to be out of everything. And then I was furious. And I smashed stuff, you know. I took part in that. Like you say, I wasn't a saint in it. Do you regret doing that now? Yeah, yeah, I really do, especially in light of, of everything that's happened since. Carl Franklin's death was confirmed on the Saturday afternoon. But as to how he came to die, that's a trifle more uncertain. First, City Watch's Joseph Masters. Franklin's death is an absolute tragedy. Let's say that to start with, an absolute tragedy and um, something that I deeply, deeply regret... While we were talking to him in the building, I got a call on my mobile phone that there'd been um, a considerably serious level of rioting in the city centre which seemed to be spreading out of control. I took this phone call outside the building because I needed to talk to several people and make several calls because I felt that the priority had, in a way, shifted and the centre of the city was seemed to be at risk. There was talk of fires being lit, shops being smashed and looted, and I felt that our um, focus should shift, and City Watch's focus, should shift to um, aiding the um, law enforcement agencies in the city centre. So I took those calls, made a few calls myself, to um, direct some of my colleagues towards certain areas in the city centre to help the police, and that's where I went after I'd finished the calls, yes. A body was found, mm. 
later on in the day, you must have been appalled. When it's you... dreadful. It's dreadful. Where were you when you learnt of that news? Uh, I didn't. I didn't know, hear that news until the following morning. There are other accounts that suggest that you were rather more implicated physically in this event than perhaps you're admitting. I'm sure there are. I mean, people will say all sorts of things to um, besmirch my character, let's say. Midwinter's a convenient scapegoat, isn't he? A man that you recruited, a man who that you suggested should actually go undercover and infiltrate this group. He sees himself as a victim behind bars and you've got away scot-free. I've been interviewed by the police at some length. All these affairs have been gone over in great detail again and again and um, then I was released without charge, completely without charge. Mr Midwinter on the contrary, seems to be more deeply involved in the death of Carl Franklin than I. So what is Dean Midwinter's account of what happened? He's now in prison, deemed at least partially guilty of Franklin's death. We wanted to send a message, yes. And that was done in a, a very strong way. Joseph goes straight in with the rationale why what he's doing is is out of line and I'd say Carl he stood his ground he didn't say much and that made Joseph even more angry I'd say he tried to run a couple of the City Watch tried to stop him I didn't see what happened. He fell, and then he was, he was, he was limp. He was lying there. Why didn't you ring for an ambulance? Um, I, I don't know. I, I panicked. When I saw him lying there, it was clear he wasn't moving. I've never seen that before. So I, I ran. It's asking an awful lot, isn't it, of people listening to this, knowing that you had such resentment and feeling frustration during that session. It's asking an awful lot for them to think that Carl Franklin just slipped, banged his head, and it was all an accident. I, I can't make people think... I can't change their opinions. I'm just trying to be honest and say what happened. And I'm also trying to be honest in the way the feelings towards Carl were. You know, I'm, I'm sorry he's... I'm sorry he's, he's dead, but there was a resentment for him and a lot of people disliked him. Meanwhile, back in the city centre, the police had been attempting, through the media presence of Detective Inspector Francis McLaurin, to reassure the public. The current situation is that I would say we have things back under about 80% control at the minute. There were some larger groups causing us trouble and we've broken them down into smaller pockets now. So I am confident that by the end of tonight, if not tomorrow morning, we will have things under complete control. Yet despite this picture of relative control, within an hour or two, the senior police officer was to learn of Carl Franklin's death. I asked her if it was particularly shocking to hear that it was Carl who had died. Well, of course. Why is that? Well, because Carl had been quite visibly a 
a person who was against violence, who was a peaceful protester, and um, for him to lose his life whilst doing so, whilst being peaceful, is a terrible thing, obviously. Did that make you think twice about your decision earlier in the day to pull back at the old brewery? Obviously, it goes without saying that I regret that Carl Franklin lost his life. But I'm, I'm not holding myself responsible, if that's what you're getting at. Francis McLaurin had been asked to send in police officers that morning by Sergeant Ashken Karimi, but she had decided on other priorities. When he heard the news of Franklin's death, Karimi was drawn back to the old brewery ground at the first opportunity. I climbed through the, the fence. It was very dark. We were talking, what, 10.30, quarter to 11. It was after my shift. I, I climbed through. I started edging round the um, ruins, what was left of the building. You had a torch with you? Yeah, 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 of course. Um, I saw some... I say some, quite a lot of blood. It was fresh blood. It was on the ground, and it was clearly there from this morning. And that cleared up all my suspicions, all my confusion, the haze from the day, all the feelings I had that confirmed what happened in the morning. That Saturday evening, after the news broke of Carl Franklin's death, West Trent was bruised and reeling from shock. The violence and looting of earlier gave way to an eerie and tense pause as the various parties gathered stock and tried to grab an hour or two of sleep. The following morning, a weary and broken Charlie Hammond had just about enough strength to clamber into a cafe off Barton Road, a mere ten minutes' walk from where he had last seen Carl Franklin. I'm only in there because I know that I've got to eat. And I'm not hungry, not in any way, shape or form. I just sat there just kind of staring at a cup of tea and a sandwich and I see Carl's face on the telly and I, and, and I can hear like a snatch of an interview that he gave about a week ago. And I, I, at this point, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking I'm leaving West Trent. I want to crawl under a rock. I want to maybe go back and be a journalist and then chat about sport or something like that. Just get it all to the back of my mind. But I see him, that beautiful face. I see him and I hear what he's going to say and it feels like he's just kind of reaching out of the telly and going, Charlie, this is for you. It's about sitting with friends and holding out a hand to them. You can all do that. You can make that happen. You can make that happen. And that is my light bulb moment. That's when I decide to stay. Because Carl, whatever I've done, Carl would have forgiven me he would have, he would have, he would have forgiven everybody. So I've got to forgive myself. And I can see that in that very moment, that's exactly what I've got to do. So I can't leave, I can't run again. I've got to stand my ground, because that's what he would have wanted. He'd have forgiven me, and I need to go and forgive those people that murdered him. So how did that inform what you did on that Sunday morning? I stayed, I stayed. So a reinvigorated Charlie now headed down to Oliver Park, to join the growing throngs of people. After Saturday's killing, West Trent was now a powder keg waiting to blow. Police were advising people to stay away, advice that fell on deaf ears of activists like Nat Martindale. People had made placards with Carl's face on it, 
and everyone was gathering in the park, people were coming to it, and everyone wanted an answer, everyone wanted a response to it, everyone wanted vengeance, I have to say. So um, it's now about, what, 8.39 in the morning? This was before 8, this was early, this was really early when people were sort of drifting and, and coming to the park. And we all sort of congregated where we had the day before when I'd been leading chants and talking about what we were out to do and how we were going to resist and resist the government, resist injustice, work for peace, justice, but do it however we could. And um, it felt like we were on the brink of a civil war. The police were reporting something completely inaccurate. It felt like we had locals completely against us. City Watch were basically running stuff. To all intents and purposes, they'd succeeded. They'd murdered someone and got away with it. Unbelievable. And I was furious, and, and everyone around me was furious. Assessing events carefully that morning was the head of operations, Chief Inspector Frances McLaurin. I wanted to know why she seemed so confident that her messages of reassurance wouldn't backfire. A Sunday morning, the following morning, yeah. you're giving out all these reassuring messages, but actually... That situation could have still gone either way, couldn't it? It was still very tense. So you would want me to give out messages of alarm to tell people to to be afraid, to be very afraid? Is that what you would rather I do? No, I'm trying to understand what your thought process was that morning, what you were trying to do to keep a lid on that situation, to stop it tipping over, because it was at one point very, very... It was like a seesaw. It could have gone either way. We had the situation about 70% under control by that point. But that's 30% risk that it could actually go up. And, I mean, it doesn't take... It takes a I'm couple of sure seconds. I'm not sure exactly what kind of statement you would rather that I made to the public. You would rather me dwell on the 30% than to say to them, actually, look, things are getting better, things are improving. We are getting the situation under control. You would rather I did that than say, gosh, guys... I think you should really hide because there's a lot of danger no, the, on the street. The, the, the question is not a criticism, it's just trying to... It feels like a criticism, Mark, it feels like a criticism. Well, I'm sorry The whole interview feels like an attack. I'm, I'm, I, that's not my intention, it's just really to shed light on a situation that many members of the public still feel that they don't understand completely. Your message was that you wanted to reassure people, essentially. Is that, that's was correct, that your... yeah. And um, we did get the situation under control, didn't we? So One young man took a big risk that morning, Charlie Hammond, made himself very, very publicly yep. vulnerable. Were you concerned about his safety? Of course, of course I was concerned. He was a friend of Carl's. And we'd already lost one life, so of course I was concerned. Despite the standoffs between the opposing groups, Charlie Hammond now strode through hundreds of protesters. Members of City Watch some of whom may well have been involved with his friend's death only a day before, now looked on. He was overcome with the desire to address the crowd, to speak to them directly about what he saw as Carl Franklin's message of love and sitting down to talk to people, no matter how different they were from yourself. Both sides are just so angry now. Had like, you prepared what you were going to say, no, or did no, you just no, go no, with the flow? No, no, nothing, because I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, I was just sat having breakfast thinking I was going to chip off, like, you know, and just run and hide somewhere. And I saw Carl, and for some reason, like, you know, and it's not like it gave me any kind of bravery, because it didn't feel brave to do what I did. It felt necessary. 
I wanted to reach out. I wanted to reach out to the people from City Watch and just go, you're being lied to. I wanted to speak to the people that were sympathetic to Carl's message and say, don't be angry. Remember what he said. Remember what he said. Like, we can do this. So I had an obligation to go and stand up. So I got up on that stage. I don't even remember it. I couldn't tell you what he said. I felt like I was utterly kind of taken over. I didn't know what I was going to say. I stood up and I looked at that crowd and I felt like... I understood every one of them. Carl Franklin was my friend. An amazing thing. I, I, I might have been with him when he died. An amazing thing. I might have held his hand and, and, and said something to comfort him. But I didn't. You should stand up, not knowing what you're going to say. I, I didn't do those things because... um. Because, because I turned my back on him and I ran away. And a hush descends, like, across across this entire group of people. That's a terrible thing to have to say that. To, to, to feel this weight of shame. To know what I did. But I also know... I also knew that Coral would have forgiven me. No, I'd have failed him but he would have still called me friend. So what can I do now? Go back in time and change all that? Or strike a blow on his behalf? Pay someone back for what happened to him? Nah. I won't do that. I can't do that. I betrayed Carl once and I will not betray him again. Striking back would be betrayal. And what? What can I say? And how can I remember my friend? I can remember why he was joining the march at Oliver Park in the first place. And it wasn't for anger and division, but for understanding a new friendship. Even with those who failed him, even with those who claimed to be his enemies. This is why there should be a new march, here and now. Because to Carl, everyone was his family, every one of you. Whether you belong to the camp or whether you're dead against it. So today, what I'm going to ask of each of you today is to walk again to walk with me in silence and remember him. It didn't feel like it was from it was from Charlie. It no. felt other. That's that was right. what was really weird. And it was this spontaneous silence and this spontaneous march that was so different from anything I'd ever done before. It was together and it was that family. Suddenly yeah. I kind of I don't think I'd understood the meaning of the word family until until we started talking about it all. And that moment, I think, allowed people to really reevaluate. And as we saw, you know, policemen like yeah. banging tools and stuff and then coming and joining us. One of the thousands present that day was Sergeant Ashken Karimi, who was once more back on duty. He listened to Charlie Hammond's words and then began to observe their impact on the crowd. As the walk kind of grew like a ripple effect, everyone just started joining in. It was like a flow of water almost. It blew my mind. People from the City Watch were getting involved. 
and well, the vigilante group yeah, City Watch. Yeah. Some of their people joined. They, and, and by getting involved, I don't mean there were there were the odd few that were kind of hurling abuse or trying to aggravate the situation or infuse it with some violence. But for the most part, they too were joining in. And as a result of that, seeing that they were joining in, I kind of felt like everyone had dropped their weapons. And as did I. And we all just met in the middle. <laughs> in a nutshell, why do you think you abandoned your post? It's going to sound really stupid. It was a sense of belonging. It's kind of what it felt like. There's always been a cog in the clockwork that hasn't quite spun round properly. That made me feel like other. Tick the box for other. And before my eyes, people who probably also have to tick the other box, but also people who are from all walks of life, came together and I was like, oh. Like it was a calling. And it was the first time that I'd ever really felt like I could enter a group. From all sections of the local community, people began to join in. Here's what one woman told a reporter that day. I just saw myself on Saturday night, you know. I saw my reflection in a shop window and I thought, I thought, is that what I want for West Trent? Is, is that what this is all about? And I suppose I felt ashamed of myself. And um, so when, it, when he spoke, it just felt right, you know, to join, to join in. It just felt the right thing to do. The local police chief, Frances McLaurin, is a woman who has made several academic studies of crowd behaviour in her career. I was concerned that, that we might experience um, what they call a second wave, where, where a crowd once again erupts into violence, but that didn't happen. And I hadn't seen a crowd behave in the way it did before, actually. What was so unusual about it? That it brought together people from all across the community, um, City Watch, ambulance drivers, and that there was almost complete silence, people holding hands. That day's events led to some big changes nationally and locally, but also for the individuals involved. Sergeant Karimi disobeyed orders not to join the silent march and ended up leaving the police. He's got no regrets. He's now a West Trent taxi driver. The city authorities decided to dismantle the Oliver Park camp. Joseph Masters of City Watch was investigated by the police, but no further action was taken against him. But he still has a chilling message for anyone who might want to follow in Carl Franklin's footsteps. I think that before one should get involved, either as an individual or as part of a group, in another community's affairs, one should think very carefully of the consequences. It's reckless, to say the least, to go into a community that you are not familiar with, that is not your own home, let us say, and to try and involve yourselves in affairs where your involvement is not welcome. And Dean Midwinter? Well, he is serving an eight-year manslaughter sentence for his role in Carl Franklin's death, and he's not exactly enamoured with the way it all worked out. I'm facing eight years in a cell 
and you know I'm the one who's been marked as as guilty I'm the one who's who's taken the rap for this you know and if anyone's guilty you, you know Masters has has definitely got he needs to answer questions that weren't asked there is he's got more to say people are saying he, he wasn't there and that's his story and there's more to it than that and I know how the media works. I get that. There's public interest in this right now. And in two weeks, it'll be something else, somewhere else. And I'll be still in a cell. If I can't just say my piece now, it'll be forgotten about. It'll be gone. It's a year now since those tumultuous events. We've tried to answer some of the questions that have dogged the local community about that weekend but it's fair to say that some of the story's protagonists are still not comfortable when questions are asked. Individuals such as Chief Inspector Francis McLaurin, for example. Let's just go back to the events of the old brewery on that Saturday uh, when you were called out in the morning. I, I believe, Mark, that I have because answered the question no, there are one about or two things the old brewery. That, there are one or two things that we just need to clarify, I think. Um, but, I think I mean, as, a, as a human being, I'm just asking you, were you happy to... Just to make listeners aware at this point that um, Chief Inspector McLaurin is leaving the studio. Family of Carl, how can I help? In the aftermath of that Easter weekend, Charlie Hammond gave up his job on the local paper and teamed up with Nat Martindale. A local businessman offered them a rent-free office here on the high street overlooking Oliver Park. This is now the modest HQ, a family of Carl, a small organisation that looks to provide emergency help and sustenance for refugees and others. I'm Mark Dowd, and at the end of this story, brought to you by Things Unseen, it feels like Family of Carl is just the beginning of something. They're looking to get charitable status, but in the months since that silent march, they've established a helpline, attracted more than two dozen volunteers, and gained some useful media exposure. Hundreds of calls and pledges of support from the public are proof that this fledgling outfit appears to have a financially secure and certain future. And it all came out of a conversation between Nat and Charlie on the day that they met. There was um, a handful of us, wasn't there, that went back to Copstock Fields. Well, I came back with you because I, I felt like I didn't want to leave Charlie. I didn't want to leave the group. I discovered this thing that was so much bigger than me and I'd never felt that kind of connection it's weird to say it because you're in such a volatile place but I'd never felt that kind of peace I'd sort of realised that this group wasn't this um, wishy-washy kind of hippie-ish group that I'd <laughs> been, you know, that I'd heard about it was for real and it was powerful and so I went back to where you guys have been camping to Copstock Fields and um, I didn't know anything about the group so um, so Charlie talked to me about Carl and about what he'd said. One of the last things that he actually ever said to me like when we were just sat down there was he was like, this is what you do with your family. Like you, you, you sit down and you eat with them, you laugh with them, you sing with them and when they're troubled then you're troubled as well. There's going to be never any peace for you in, until there's peace for them. When did he say that to you? Friday night. Well, the night before he died? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were sat around, in actual fact, where we sat on Sunday, pretty much, like, you know, in exactly the same place. It epitomised everything that he stood for, because he said, 
And even if they're wearing uniforms and walking towards you with eight in their eyes and a stick in their hands, it's still a family occasion. And they're part of that family. We're gonna sit down and eat with our family.